Welcome to Millions of Screens, IndieWire's TV industry-focused podcast. I'm creative producer Leo Garcia, joined as always by TV awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor Ben Travers. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the DGA nominations, a new Parasite television show, and TCAs, where you guys have been for the past week and a half. How long have you guys been gone? Don't ask us questions about time. There's no windows in the ballroom. I feel like I haven't seen you guys since we last recorded this podcast. We That's did have... accurate. This is... Millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. On today's Clicker, our recap of the biggest news items from this past week. First up, we have DGA nominations, which kind of came out in waves. They did. <laughs> it did. It was very strange. Very strange year for the D- Directors Guild nominations, uh, specifically for television. Um, they implemented a new voting strategy, not strategy, um, but system this year. And apparently there were some issues Mm -hmm. um, that delayed a large chunk of the TV nominations. Specifically, some might argue the main categories, which are drama and uh, drama and comedy and variety talk news sports special. However, so the the beginning of the week started with a a bunch of uh, Great nominations, I want to say. Fosse Verdon did very well mm-hmm. um, because limited series came out. But it was really in that second batch of nominees where things got interesting. Um, shows that don't necessarily get love from the SAGs, the, the actors or the Globes. Um, Obviously. Come to play at Directors Guild, at Writers Guild, which is another way to say that HBO shows dominated and um, and uh, finally Watchmen is getting its due. HBO swept the drama category. And all five. Swept the drama category, had two of the five comedy series. The two that weren't Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Right, right. So wait, hold on. I got to do the math really quick. One, two, three, six shows nominated across... Drama and comedy, and they had five of them. So yeah. pretty good, HBO. Pretty yeah, good. not bad. Not bad. Good work. I mean, they got they got seven out of ten total nominations, right? That too. That's another <laughs> version of the math. Yeah, but it was, I mean, it is legitimately exciting to see not only Nicole Castle or Cassell get nominated for Watchmen uh, because that pilot is, is extraordinary. Yeah, it's doing so um, much work. But for them to realize that they needed to nominate two Watchmen directors because, you know, Stephen Williams and oh, this extraordinary yeah. be- being is just undeniable. And it, it could have been one of those things where at this point with the awards and we've been a little disappointed by how much recognition the rest of the, the industry is paying toward Watchmen. It's like, God, I just want him to get the one, like just break in. Yeah. It was really, you know, rewarding to see the actual... <laughs> Like kind of proper amount of recognition being paid at this first stage. So especially when it's so off, uh, especially when it's very often where a show's first season will get uh, one nomination. You'll see in Succession, I believe, got one last year uh, for the Adam McKay and the pilot. Mm-hmm. And um, this year, Succession again got another one, this time for season two's finale and Mark Mylod. Um, the episode This Is Not For Tears, which was amazing. Um, so it's cool. Uh, and you know what? The two Game of Thrones noms yeah. that finish out that category, I'm not 
mad about. It's two of their best directors, David Nutter and Miguel Sapochnik. And and those were those were pretty good episodes. I I liked Last of the Starks. The Long Night eventually will be remastered by Criterion, I'm sure, and I'll be able to see what was going on. And uh, I'm very excited. Yeah. Very excited for that. She's throwing some shade at that episode. <laughs> I had to look up what episode Last of the Starks is because like the ones that stick out in my head are The Bells and The Long The Long Night. Yeah. And and I imagine that that I I am always <sighs> upset that that Long Night gets the edge over the Bells because I think Bells is much more beautiful, not just because it takes place during the day and you can see what's happening, um, but I think there is such regard for the 48 days of shooting, of night shooting that yeah. had to go on for that. And it's kind of just a technical achievement, not just a technical achievement nomination, but I, especially the DGA, they are judging on things that I couldn't possibly comprehend and so i am a, i i am able to step back and be like well they'd know so anything to add about the the comedy uh, i was very excited to see david mandel get nominated mm-hmm. i like to see veep get like at least you know a couple of of important recognitions before it's it's totally gone i thought you buddy when i saw that i was so happy yeah um and i was glad to see bill Hader in there for ronnie and lily which i think is a great episode. Which I think is his second nomination, right? DJs? I believe so. Double checking. Go to the tape. But yeah, it's it's interesting to me that the rest of that comedy category is filled out with the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Not just because this was a year that had Russian doll in it. And it seems strange to me that you overlook that, but Marvelous Mrs. Maisel just came out. Like it's a very, it's very beloved. Uh, I wrote in my piece on this, like the directors just fall more in love with Mrs. Maisel with each passing year. Uh, the first year it got one nom, the second year it got two. Now it has three for three different directors. The creator, Amy Sherman Palladino, her husband, Daniel Palladino, and also uh, Dan Attias. Uh, I found out that not only was Hader nominated last year, but he won. That's what I thought. Topping uh, dual nominations for Atlanta and Maisel. So. Libby, is there, just, this might have made the pod, but really quickly, do you know what the voting snap, like what was the change in voting that caused the delay? I don't know. What I do know about that situation is that before voting closed, there were emails sent out to members adding people to the ballot. Uh, specifically, um, Jill Soloway was left off the ballot for um, comedy series director for her direction of the transparent musicale finale. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I am assuming that that hap- they found other incidents of that and so then needed to reboot all of that in order to have a fair playing field. That is my assumption. Um, I'm not sure what the switch was, but that was what that was what they told me. What was communicated to you? Yes. All right. What should we, should we talk about Parasite TV or should we talk about The Outsider first? I mean, we should probably just talk about Parasite TV. <laughs> I mean, The Outsider. If you want me to, is the embargo lifted to go yet? Fucking nuts! Oh, is it, it's, oh, is it, it's out. Yeah, it's already. It's on HBO. It aired I watched on two episodes. Sunday. I'm a Rube and I watched it. <laughs> Rube man. Rube man watched it. I Where watched two episodes. Stickers? Did you love it? <laughs> 
I think what I told Ben is like, well, one, I thought like, like it is like incredibly weirdly atmospheric and like incredibly moody. And I, I was kind of hooked. The pilot, I think, is real. Does a really good job of like, you know, telling the story in pieces that are, you know, out of out of sequence. It's very interesting. Second episode, not as much because at that point it starts being more straightforward. What's happening? I really enjoyed the two episodes. I will say I am dreading whatever this supernatural twist is. Uh, but if we're going to talk the outsider, then let's <laughs> let's talk about the outsider. Lay into the outsider. Um, the outsider is a point of fascination for me that oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know. As we share an office, Ben has been regaling me with facts and uh, for months, for months about, about how bad about how bad the book is. Well, Partly. for one, yes, yeah. yes, uh, it, it has been an adventure, let's say, but. But Ben, it's time for you to to take your platform and 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 speak to the people about the outsider. Well, I'm really interested in in seeing how Leo continues to react to it because when I first encountered it, I got to watch three episodes, uh, and then when I finished those three episodes, I was like, I think I know what's going on here, but I'm not entirely sure. So I read the book, and the book is atrocious. Uh, it it sets up this combination of genres that are inherently incompatible. The the true crime stories uh, with like a true crime detective story with um, a, a supernatural adventure. And those two things aren't supposed to go together because true crime stories have a basis in reality in which your answers are going to be given and you're going to be uh, convinced that this is the truth or at least see which kind of avenues you know, you're led down to 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 believe uh, in one or the other, and like, mm-hmm. okay, well, he could have gotten away with it this way, or maybe he's innocent because of this. Uh, but supernatural kind of just provides easier answers in the world of make believe, and there's a great way to to tackle this story that the show might be doing, uh, in that you're challenging people to think about uh, the unbelievable in a realistic fashion like consider that as a as an actual possibility uh within a world that is so starkly defined by uh bateman's direction in the show which i think is actually perfectly suited for this um and the show has made enough adjustments through the six episodes i've seen for me to think that they're very aware richard price is the the main he's the showrunner and the producer who kind of led the adaptation uh, he did the night of. He did. Um, he worked on the wire. Like he worked on a lot of. I will say, had, it had like, very authentic. night of right, and it vibes. It, it should. It's supposed to. Like that's what they're absolutely going for at the start of it. Um, but but there's been enough changes where I think that he's going to. He's already addressing the questions that the book had no interest in addressing, and he's already understanding how those genres can play into each other in a more, uh, in like a creepier fashion than the book could because the book is just is very it's very bullying in how it wants to tell you what to think and tell you you're wrong if you think one thing and you're uh foolish if you don't consider this other thing that seems foolish um so i'm interested to see the rollout of the show for everybody who isn't necessarily familiar with a where it's going or b even the source material like you know it's a stephen king show but i don't think that's enough 
to tell you that supernatural has to be a part of it. Stephen King's name is associated with things that aren't wholly reliant on the supernatural. But the show has already sort of tipped its cap in that direction. The show is very consciously doing that. The marketing is very consciously doing that. And I think all of that is essential to actually appreciating the show because you could watch it. And if you had no outside (laughs) outsider influence, um, then you wouldn't necessarily know that this twist was coming, that this shift in genres is going to occur this blend um and when and when that happens when you realize that that's the answer it it throws you like it's something you're going to kind of instinctually reject and i think the show again is doing a better job of of leading the audience toward that point and also engaging in questions that matter surrounding why you try to do something like this in the first place um but i i think there's a, a scene an episode I think it's the fifth episode that is kind of the we're going to put it all out on the table moment. And when that happens, I think you're either like you're going to see a, a groundswell of people either be like, OK, like I'm, I'm with it. Let's see where this goes or fuck off like this is insane. I can't believe this is what you decided to do with the show. Um, so it's kind of an interesting social experiment for me, uh, but also just just an obsession because it was it's very hard for me to understand why someone would read this book and be like, I have to turn this into a prestigious HBO drama series with Ben Mendelsohn, who we've been waiting to have a lead role in something forever because he's amazing. And Cynthia Erivo, who's just nominated for two Oscars yesterday. Like, why are they, why are, why is everyone? I mean, the way, the way you put it pre pod was that reading this book made you question the fact that maybe Stephen King never knew how to write. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> arguably one of the most popular Never authors of the 20th ever <laughs> and it's it is like the book is it is so bloated it, it's it's so incredibly long it's so incredibly over focused on things that become redundant and become unimportant um it doesn't ever engage with the strange dichotomy of genres that it that it lives in to try to evoke a question about society or about um, you know, our perception of people or, or, you know, whether or not, you know, something that is pure good and pure evil actually exists within humanity or if we're all just kind of shades of gray. There's none of that even kind of basic, um, you know, thematic material within the novel, which is really, really frustrating because you can see it all sitting there like you could get to it if you wanted to. And instead you're doing this other thing that just doesn't matter. Um, so, so yes. And I mean, Stephen King's on a, Bit of a rough patch between this being his last book and those tweets about why diversity isn't important uh, in awards shows. So let's talk a little bit about this Parasite TV show. We don't know anything, literally, aside from the fact that Adam McKay is attached. I have also heard that Bong Joon-ho has ideas for the series. Yeah, apparently he has ideas. He has things that he couldn't fit into the film, essentially. That while he was writing the film, there was just too much he couldn't fit into the two-hour structure of the film. So he has topics that he wants to explore. But as three people who really enjoyed Parasite, I think we're all officially members of the Bong Hive. It's the only hope for the Oscars this year. Yeah. Uh, He obviously was tangential to the podcast at some point. He walked past the podcast studio and we all were aghast. I think think we're excited about the possibility of HBO, Adam McKay, and Bong Joon-ho combining to create a Parasite television show. I mean, I was happy to hear from the very limited discussions that Bong has shared about the movie uh, or about the the adaptation that it doesn't sound like it's going to be 
a remake of what we've already seen in the movie, but uh, using the movie as inspiration for similar stories with similar themes. Yep. So um, obviously uh, McKay shares a lot of those feelings given some of the other projects he's worked on. They have um, their mentalities are lined up in terms of uh, their socioeconomic thinking, their political leanings, their messaged presentations. Um, so I, I feel like it's exciting for whatever they decide to cook up. It's just so early at this point that, you know, we'll I think know that, more later. Yeah, I think that Adam McKay shepherding someone else's story and ideas and talent to the small screen is something we've seen succeed before yeah. about these same subject matters. And so if we're going to see if, if Parasite becomes something like a a counterpoint, as it were, to succession, like I think that is very interesting and makes sense uh, as a direction HBO would want to go. And so I'm not sure what it's going to look like, but I trust that it's going to be sort of an adaptation or an inspiration, like you said, of, of the themes, of the spirit of Parasite. Um, and that's a television show I want to see. Yeah, it almost feels like the flip side of Succession where you're seeing the opposite end of the class struggles. Right. Uh, what if it's literally just about the family who watched the softball game and the pilot? Yeah, no, exactly. That's all. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. To introduce a, a, a possible segue to this conversation, I think we're going to hear at least a little bit more about what's in store for that adaptation when hbo shows up to the tcas they're not having an executive session with casey Boyce, but you know they'll be in the building and mm -hmm. questions will be asked so by you i hope so track them down well yeah well you guys have been missing in action at the tcas for the past week and a half what can you tell me about them for, um, for starters obviously with all the sort of like mergers, acquisitions, has the landscape changed a little bit at TCAs? That's actually weird. I hadn't I hadn't noticed it until Ben pointed it out to me. Ben. Well, it, it's what's interesting about the TCAs in the past was that it was kind of neatly divided by days. And even some days were split up into three or four different networks. But basically one network got a whole day to themselves and then the next day would be a whole new network. And it was kind of... Um, funny and a little disheartening to see like the turnover just in the decorations outside. Like when you're at the Beverly Hilton, they usually had like a big logo sitting out front in the circular drive up right. spot and that would get hauled in, hauled out, you know, every day, the, the backdrops, the tablecloths, the like everything kind of set up in the room would get shifted over every night. So you've got people working just to kind of do a makeover on a, on the same room every single day because there was a new thing coming. And this session, this winter TCAs has just felt much more like the, uh, the, the corporatization, the, 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 the monopolization, the the, yeah, like that has just been seen in the daily rollout of the TCAs because we had a whole section at the start that was Disney. You just had ABC, you had uh fx you had uh fx talking about hulu hulu is actually later in the tour which it was disconnected from the the disney block a little bit and then the kind of um i don't know 
stepsister Fox Entertainment right. is like right next to it, next to the FX and uh, ABC in the lineup. And it, it just, you could see the corporate like synergy working through those three days. Then we got another two days of CBS Viacom, two and a half days, because it was CBS had a day, Showtime had a day, yeah. and then a half day for the Viacom family of networks. Um, and you're just, you're seeing kind of one representative speak for the whole of it. You're seeing like smaller, like, uh, you know, other executives come up and speak to individual properties. Um, but a lot of the backdrops remain the same and a lot of the messages remain the same. And a lot of um, kind of how they complement one of one another instead of compete against one another it's just a different vibe because you're so used to seeing you're so used to seeing kind of fx and hulu as you know opponents yeah you're, you're the their shows were of the same vein and they were going after the same awards and the same viewers and uh that was a competition for a while and now john langraff is sitting on the stage you know talking about how great it is to be part of the disney team and the hulu team and um it's it's a little strange at one point but it is just a very real reminder of what's happening to the television landscape and how the kind of just onslaught of repetitive content of shows that kind of look like each other or look like the shows you liked before can now be manufactured more from that you know i mean to use one example, the Disney machine, like they right. know how to do that and they're going to keep doing it. And it's going to keep filling up the 530 some shows that we get each year. As you're talking about this, I literally all I can see is like a TCA monopoly board. And like you have these monopolies and one is like one side's Disney. And then you have within that you have, you know, you have Disney plus and you have FX and you have Hulu and and you have to have them all to build it hotels literally and um yeah it's just it's um it's it's hard to wrap your head around i think that and it actually it it concerns me a little bit because it's not like they hide it but it's it's important to remember who is holding the purse strings on all of these things and hold and and understand that there is a a greater grand vizier <laughs> responsible for everything um to not mistake that fx and hulu are still opponents like they're still you know it's just it's it's a weird atmosphere to to wrap your head around yeah and you get the questions kind of shift um there was a moment during the cbs all access executive panel where somebody asked like is there a plan in place for you know cbs uh, all access to merge with Showtime into one kind of Viacom-owned streaming service so that you're not paying two different things and all of the originals are just kind of lumped together like we're seeing with a lot of other people or a lot of other uh, networks slash companies put out like Warner Media, um, And they were just kind of like, we're no plans at this time. And yet they're announcing their subscriber base. Every time they mention their subscribers, it's, it's both of those oh, yeah. entities together. Like we got 10 million now. And it's Showtime and CBS. We're not going to tell you how many CBS All Access has and how many Showtime has. We're just going to present them as one unit. But we're not going to tell you that we're going to eventually try to merge these depending on how you know cable deals and, and streaming right. successes like shift. 
Uh, and, you, and you know, the weird thing with Disney was they brought ABC and they brought FX right. because FX is a staple of the TCAs and John Landgraf is the mayor of television and we need to hear from him every right. every six months. Otherwise, we get very we get very concerned <laughs> right. and we just don't know what to do with ourselves. We will be lost in a sea of of ever growing television unless John Landgraf comes and tells us how many shows there are, how many more are coming, and what he thinks of those developments. Right. Uh, it's very comforting to hear you know someone of of that stature talk about. What we're all going through. Um, what were his numbers this year? 530 something. I'm going to let Libby look that up and just go back to the first thing, which was that 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 Disney brought. It was weird that Disney brought. It wasn't weird that they brought FX. And it's not weird that Hulu has their own day. Um, but it was weird to see kind of the whole Disney family there without anyone representing Disney Plus. There wasn't a Disney Plus day. That was bananas. There wasn't a Disney Plus panel. There wasn't no. a Disney Plus presentation. No. There was chatter about Disney Plus because people are like, well, is this going to be connected to Hulu in a more concrete way other than a bundle? Like like stuff like that. But there wasn't a representative for each one at this kind of, you know, overall TV get together. So um, it's just interesting to see those decisions get made and then kind of guess as to why with Disney Plus. I think it's just because they don't have a ton of new originals right now that they want to talk about. I don't think that's it. What do you think? I think it's, uh, I think when Disney Plus wants to talk about its television show, Disney will have its own festival. Like it doesn't have to come to TCA, doesn't have to play. And if Apple Plus's, Apple TV Plus, TV Plus's day at TCA does not go very well, they won't come back either. Well, I think that's, I do agree with that. Oh. And I. 532 new tele or tele scripted TV shows in 2019. Yeah, drama, comedy, limited series. Like, it's weird that he even has to, like, when you say 532, you're like, I would believe that that's all of the television shows. And that's like, no, 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 no. Drama, comedy, limited series, scripted. So not documentaries, not reality TV. TV. Like, good God. Um, I'm so tired. <laughs> that's that's probably the biggest takeaway from TCAs, which again is embodied in the lack of sleep you get because you have to get there so early and usually you're staying pretty late and you have to watch everything. But um, but no, like I, I feel like you're right in the sense that if the Apple Day isn't to their liking, much like, you know, I'm not saying Netflix didn't enjoy their last stop at the TCA a year and a half, two years ago, but they definitely got questions that they didn't want to answer and they didn't come back and they've hence experimented with their own versions of, of a TCA type get together where they moderate their own panels and they don't take questions from the critics and they have roundtables set up for interviews that they control as opposed to the other way around. Um, so Apple very well could follow in that model. I think what was interesting to me was just that this was kind of the first opportunity for Disney Plus to show up for the critics and try it Absolutely. and see how it went while a lot of their sister brands were already going to be there. Yeah, they'd have moral support. Exactly. And and it's not like the company itself is saying, we're not going to do this anymore. Right. It's just like, well, we don't need to do it for Disney Plus right now. So it was kind of a strange abstention. That I they, do that think that there is an element to, they don't have the most new programming coming out right now so i mean that that absolutely probably don't want part. to talk about marvel right now is what they said and what i agree with like what are the tcas like what what well, are the what, fair question what are, what are these sessions built to do tca began as a way for tv critics all around the country to 
get access to stars, get access to executives, learn about upcoming programming seasons. That's why it's twice a year. It's built on the old television model. Um, and this was all before the internet. You know, they weren't putting Lucille Ball on the phone mm-hmm. to, to someone in Podunk, wherever, to, you know, give a big interview. So they'd all, I Love Lucy. they'd all meet at the hotel. The right. network would give their presentation. The critics would ask the network, you know, whatever they wanted to ask at the time, the executives. And then the individual panel presentations for the shows, uh, they could get stories, get quotes for the immediacy if there was something that they wanted to write up the next day or for or hold for later and right. get those interviews. And because it was all in one place, it made it easier for everybody to have that access and for the word to get out about these shows far and wide. Now that the internet has taken over, it's a little bit different. Uh. And it's very different. It is very different for, let's say, Ben and I, who are in LA. Like there are plenty of junkets. There are plenty of opportunities to set up uh, conversations with people over the phone or, or you know, even a one-on-one in person. Right. Um, that are not afforded to critics around the country or the globe. So it's, uh, it, it, is, it does serve a purpose, but its purpose is getting muddier as technology improves. It, it's, it's a lot about access and building and networking and, and building those connections. Um, it's impossible to explain. No, and that's, I think that's a really good... I think that's, that's why, a really that's good summation. Thank you. It's good. I mean, it, there's a lot of people like we talk about TCA all the time, and you know, when uh, I started here, think it's the Teen Choice Awards. Yeah, when I started here, you guys were in the midst of summer TCAs, and I was like, I think I have an idea what that is. And I was like, I went on my merry way. Yeah, and it would be. I mean, it would be a lot easier if everybody could just kind of come in and see it for a day, and then they'd kind of get the gist of it. Uh, and yet, Libby, to your point about the access that is where I think the real value comes from because you can literally be sitting in the ballroom and get up and go walk and talk to somebody who you'd have to email and hope to get a response from, call, text, whatever you do before to reach out to try to set something up. And instead you can get it right then. Um, You can also talk to those people and like talk to a lot of people in such a frank manner that is harder to convey over email or harder to convey when you're scheduling an appointment or a meeting or whatever it is to just get an idea of what is important to them or what you know the framing is or the backstory. Um, so that's a huge value. And then speaking very quickly as just a critic, it is really helpful to be given a good idea of what the important shows are to each network at the start right. of a session. Like it's great at the start of the year because then you can get kind of a big picture. But then there's, again, so much television that having another one six months later is essential because you need it for the rest. Like they don't have time to get to everything they're going to do in 2020 because one, they don't know. And two, uh, there's too many shows. So as a critic, it's like, okay, so I get some access to see some of these early on. So I know what to prioritize. I know what to dig into, but also I know what they're prioritizing and I know what their identity is going to be defined by and what's going to be important to them in the coming six months. And that is such an immense value. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's hard to, to overstate that. Uh, one last thing, just because I'm a sucker for sizzles. <laughs> What's your favorite sizzle you've seen so far at the TCAs? I mean, FX's was weird. FX had a lot of like 
lines shifting and they like create boxes and squares that mirror like different shows next to each other. Um, I think they released it online. Uh, it looks it looked cool, but it was kind of strange to to absorb in the room. I I think it was it, also kind of upsetting because oh, yeah. eventually you realized that it wasn't all FX shows. It was all FX shows that were available to stream on Hulu. So like the Americans didn't appear in their sizzle reel at all, but like man uh, seeking, woman. seeking woman was there. Wilbur, Wilbur, Wilfred, Wilfred was there. Um, yeah, it wasn't even new current shows. No. It was just everything because they're touting the library that they have to offer now that they're on Hulu. So guys, someone who's not at TCA's is Quibi, which leads us to the question we ask every week. Libby, do you have a show on Quibi yet? I don't have a show on Quibi yet, but thank you for asking. We're going to ask every week. I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to this conversation next <laughs> next week because I think things are happening. I think I think things could happen for me. I have hope. Great. Millions of Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation and IndieWire. Our theme music features excerpts of the classic YouTube video Bjork talking about her TV and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Dana Harris-Brideson. Our publisher is James Israel. And our executive editor is Ann Donahue. You can find us online at A Million Screens, at Midwest Spitfire, at Ben T. Travers, and at Leo Adrian Garcia. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. So please leave a review and a rating, and maybe we'll mention your critiques and take some of your notes. This has been Libby and Leo reminding you, as always, that you shouldn't let poets lie to you. You shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast. <laughs> <laughs>